out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mark Green. I'm the medical director at Westbridge and um, Mary's taking a break today. So today I've got Daniel Mackler. Hi, Dan. Hello. Daniel, sorry. So (laughs) Daniel is the director of... um, the 2008 documentary, Take These Broken Wings, which was a feature-length film on recovery from schizophrenia without me- medication, and is just about to release two further movies, one on, um, well, we'll let you talk about that, what, what the movies are about. You've also published um, A Way Out of Madness um, with Matthew Morrissey, dealing with your family after you've been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder, and talk very widely um, about alternatives, alternative approaches to treatment of psychosis. And Daniel, you were a therapist in New York City for 10 years, right? Yep. Yeah, which you've put away for now to concentrate on movie making and writing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 11 months ago, I closed my therapy practice. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me how you got into... Um, well, why don't you start by telling me what these two new movies about um, that are coming out very soon? Sure. Uh, the two new movies, the first one is set, it's a, they're both documentaries. They're set, the first one is set in Sweden, and it's about an alternative treatment program that helps people who have been failed by traditional psychiatry. And a lot of the people that they see have been diagnosed with psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, other things like that, and have been failed by the system, a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of, a lot of the kind of people who I saw in my therapy practice in New York. And they have a totally alternative approach where um, it, they place people on an entirely voluntary basis in farm families in the Swedish countryside. And they, they have other placements also, but a lot of their work is with farm families. And they, it, it's a, a bit like the Soteria Project, Mm-hmm. that happened in California, but they, they choose farmers who, uh, not for, on the basis of any psychiatric expertise, but instead they choose stable, compassionate, caring people who want to give something back. And they place people who've been failed by psychiatry in these actual families, and they offer really intensive supervision to the farmers, and they offer intensive psychotherapy to the clients. And the so, so this is a, it's not going to a highly skilled nursing facility or no. group home. Um, it's going out into the community um, with just well-selected well and uh, thoughtful um, farmers. Yeah, who have no psychiatric experience whatsoever mm-hmm. as professionals. They're living with non-professionals, and often the, 
the farm families have children and they have dogs and cats and it's just like they basically clients people and they don't even call them the program called the Family Care Foundation doesn't call them clients they just say people and right. the people live at, with for these farmers and often the people let's say people who they might have children instead of the the people the so-called clients might have children as opposed to when they go to the hospital or an often another facility they can't bring their children this program they're allowed to bring their children with them sometimes they bring a husband or wife with them and they live uh with these farmers for what are the expectations upon them is it to to work or be part of the community or to take their medications what's the expectations uh, that's a good question um I think the expectation is gradually for the people to participate in family life and not necessarily to work, but sometimes just participating in family life inherently involves working, especially if they're on a farm. I mean, there are, there are, there are some great cases I heard where people like, you know, like the, the farm father was off in another part of the farm and the farm mother is there and there was a sick cow or a cow that was giving birth and there was a problem, and the only person that could help was this client who was in a very regressed state that might be called psychotic, not getting out of bed, screaming a lot, and the only person that could help was this client. So they're like, you've got help, we need help, the cow's mm-hmm. giving birth. And so they, like, the person suddenly just, like, bursts out of their like, sort of disappearing, very unaware state and goes and helps, give, you know, helps the cow give birth. And that's like, I don't know if it's exactly an expectation, but it's like, we need your help right now. Right. And... And I, I and the expectation about taking medication I think can really vary, but the program in general has an attitude that they want to help people get off their medication, and mainly I would say even better is that they take an uh, an attitude that they want to value what the clients want, mm-hmm. and so they see the medication as being in general toxic, dangerous, not a good long-term solution. So if the clients want to get off their medication, they're more than happy to oblige. And the farm families that I talk to all seem to be very much on board with the idea that it was just like, it's good common sense. Who would want to be on these really extreme toxic medications? And a lot of these families have decades of experience working with people who have gotten off their medications successfully. So you've said a lot of interesting phrases. Um, Oh, you know, i better come back to them because... Why don't you tell me about the second movie, and then we'll see what themes emerge. Sure. Well, the second movie is set in northern Finland in western Lapland, and that's uh, I visited the Open Dialogue uh, program there, and I chose to visit the Open Dialogue program because on, on paper they were getting the best statistical results in the world for people labeled with first-break psychosis or people experiencing first-break psychosis. Yeah. So I visited there. I was there for two weeks staying on their hospital unit or on their hospital grounds and just going off into the community and visiting their local clinics and hanging out a lot with their therapists and with their clients and with my camera and my sound equipment and just doing lots and lots of interview and interviews and getting a lot of footage. And I basically created a 70, well, I think this is a 74-minute documentary just all about open dialogue from beginning to end as best as I could do it in two weeks. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of similarities between the two programs. On the other hand, the two programs are entirely different. But uh, they're both. One thing that I love about both these programs, which really inspired me to want to make films about both of them, was that they're both totally free to clients. They're both part of socialized uh, socialized medicine for both of these countries. So, unlike some of the great programs in the United States, 
the great pro- some of the greater or better programs in the United States cost ten, twenty thousand dollars a month to go to for clients. So it's basically right. they're only accessible to rich people. Both yep. of these programs are for anybody. Yep. So in open dot, we spoke with we've spoken with Mary Olson on this show a couple of mm. times, um, and um, and have. And so, so we've heard a lot about Open Dialogues as a program that has similarities perhaps to the Swedish program in that um, you're really working very extensively with um, families in their own homes and out in the community, not bringing people all the time into the mental health system. Right. And that um, you're not going for a quick label of schizophrenia or any diagnosis, um, right. but... Um, trying to under, just trying to get people back into a grip on life yeah. um, that they're that the functioning and um, embed being embedded in a family or an active world and having those expectations um, for you to function normally um, can um, help you bounce off the mental health system yes yeah so um and in both those programs, it sounds like the use, ongoing use of medications um, is really much, much lower. Right. Yeah, and the basic difference is the, the Swedish program uh, is not working with very many people who are experiencing a first-break psychosis. They're working with a lot of people who have had lots and lots and lots of very negative failing experiences in traditional psychiatry, whereas yeah. the program in Finland is working with people who have never experienced the mental health system at all. And they're brand new to it. They're not on medication when they come in. And in many ways, in my experience, the people that they work with in open dialogue are much, much easier to work with because they're working with people who haven't, I mean, whatever problems they're having, whatever traumas or issues may have caused their problems, they're not also, on top of it, traumatized by the mental health system. Mm -hmm. And they're not starting off on tons of medication. So it's a lot easier to help people get well if they haven't already been brutalized by the conventional psychiatric system and they're not already totally hooked on really heavy medication. Yeah. So there's a few things, a few key phrases which you've brought up which I'm going to come back to. One is this idea of being failed by the psychiatric system. And it's a, it's a very different take because when you see someone who's been um, through multiple hospitalizations and many medication trials, um, the typical language that I would hear on my side of, uh, you know, as a, as a physician is um, that they have failed numerous medication trials. And their problem is refractory, perhaps. And their problem is refractory. That's right. Right. Um, so tell me a bit about that language there, that they're failed by the psychiatric system. Well, I, I think in this way, I'll probably speak best from my personal experience as a therapist. Okay. where I worked with lots and lots of people myself. If someone comes in to the psychiatric system, they're experiencing a huge and overwhelming amount of anxiety and fears, and their life maybe has become pigeonholed in many ways, and they're under just a lot of stress and terrors, and some of their problems might be conventionally labeled as psychosis. Mm-hmm. You know, they may be hearing voices, or may, you know, they may be having ideas that are considered strange or delusional or bizarre, and when these, to me, these problems often are, these are normal human problems that we all, to some degree, can have, some more extreme than others. But they're not lifelong problems. So 
to me, any good system helps someone resolve their problems. It may take a little while, it may take a long while, it may take a short while. But if a person cannot be helped to get well, and instead, once they come into the system, their problems get worse, 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 and become chronic, and they end up with lots of different medications that are very heavy medications that make their mind less clear, maybe even hurt their mind in many ways, get all sorts of treatments that make them feel like less of a person, make them feel more strange, and, and then maybe they stop the medications for a while, and then in, in, a, in an incorrect or inappropriate way, and the problems become then more extreme, and the result is even more medications, and suddenly it's 5, 10 years, 15 years down the road. And they've still got, you know, all the same problems they had to begin with, plus 10 new ones, several different diagnoses, and they haven't really been in the stream of a healthy, happy, functioning life. Mm. And they've basically become outcasts in society in so many ways. To me, that's, that's a system that has failed them. That's, right. that's like the psychiatric system has failed that person. And, of course, generally the psychiatric system defends itself by saying, well, they just haven't responded well. Their problems are refractory. It was a little bit more serious than we realized to begin with. And whereas I see that very same person, if they got something that was more compassionate, caring, helpful, and actually just correct, they might have just gotten back on track. It might have been a brief blip in their life. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the... Um, that's right. The, the data on long-term outcomes are much, uh, are much more, more optimistic than what we tend to see in the clinics. Sure. Um, and the big question mark is what on earth is happening um, that those good outcomes are being obliterated. Yeah. Um, and the base function of a mental health system should be to engage someone and help them move forward in their life productively and feel better about themselves and feel more empowered yeah. in their lives. And that empowerment is intensely important. And that does seem to be um, eroded so power, so tragically um, mm. when people engage in the mental health system and they receive a very pessimistic um, appraisal, um, you know, saying it's a chronic relapsing condition and this is, you know, we must expect a long-term decline. Um, and... What you've seen in your practice and in Sweden and Finland is that people really can bounce off the system and recover even perhaps later. Oh, yeah. People state. can certainly recover without any medication. So we'll come back to this after the break, okay? Sure. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. 
Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello, welcome back. This is Mark Green. I'm with Daniel Mackler. So, Daniel, um, we're talking a bit about, um, you know, recoveries and uh, your experiences in Sweden and Finland. So, off the break, you said you had some thought that you wanted to go with, and oh, yeah. thought we'd just go for it on air, live. So, sure. go ahead. Well, it was, it was a memory I have. I, or I recently, I recently uh, had a memory of when I was 15 years old. I'm 39 now. So, this was, what, 24 years ago. And I was a kid in my family, and I, I remembered an experience I had that was very, very painful. And I don't want to get into too much detail, but basically I had something that, that if it was talked about in the conventional psychiatric system, it would have been labeled delusional. I had, a, I had what would be called a delusion, and it was extremely painful. I had really horrible feelings about it. Um, a cousin of mine, a relative, and they were, it was, it was just, and I didn't know how to handle it. I certainly didn't know how to talk about it with anyone, and I couldn't talk about it with anybody in my family, and so what I did is I just basically totally marginalized this cousin from my life, took a huge amount of distance, and never spoke about it at all, and my family knew that something was going on because previously I had been close to this cousin, and they were all questioning me, why are you doing this? This is horrible, but I couldn't talk about what was going on in my head, maybe a little bit, but I knew that people would think I was you know, very strange or maybe even crazy. Yeah. And what happened is, over time, it sort of resolved itself, but I, it came back to me within the last few weeks, and I realized it was like, it was a awful situation in my family that was going on and basically I had been set up and put in a position that was totally emotionally impossible for me to deal with and the stress was so high and the emotional content was so high that I responded by coming up with these thoughts that would be labeled as delusional and I thought what would have happened if I'd gone into the mental health system 
Mm-hmm. And what struck me is, because I've seen so many people who came into the mental health system with a problem just like mine, and I would have been labeled with a diagnosis. I would have probably been labeled with a delusional disorder or maybe a brief psychotic disorder. If it lasted, who knows? And nowadays, it would be totally normal and a accepted standard of care for me to be given a really serious medication. And I wasn't depressed about it, so I wouldn't be surprised if I got an antipsychotic. And what would have happened to me? Yeah. And how I don't think people would have really understood why I was having the problem. And it's taken me decades to really come to terms with it and what it really meant and where it came from. And I I just thought, my God, I was so lucky Mm -hmm. that I didn't have to get sucked into the mental health system. Now, my response was just to kind of shut down, marginalize a person and not say anything. But in a way, that was very self-protective. But effective. See, I think think there's a lot of... um lack of, there's a great um, deal of um, clouding about what transient psychotic states might mean. Yeah. Um, when you, you know, because they're very prevalent in the general population, if you do, sure. gen, if you do population studies, um, hallucinations, um, delusions, or odd ideas, um, and most of those don't transition to anything or come to treatment. It, they may actually come to treatment more in open dialogues approach because you're assertively outreaching um, a lot of people and getting people within the first, you know, few days of a right. And the people, experience. the people in northern Finland who live in this western Lapland area have such a positive feeling toward the psychiatric system that yeah. they're not looking at it as something that's going to hurt them. They very willingly go and say, "These people can help us." And the general thing is the people do help them without putting very many people on medication. I think about 20% of people end up on some antipsychotic, something like that. Uh, I think it's it's a third get some ever, and then uh, maybe half of those people stay on it long term. Right, and I think that that's probably typical. I wonder, you know, I mean, it might be that the kind of condition or state that you describe in yourself would be one of those which, if it came to the attention of the psychiatric profession um, in Lapland, um, may have been just treated in a very um, uh, thoughtful fashion. Here, it probably doesn't come to the attention of of the mental health services. To get to the attention of mental health services... People have to have poor, you know, either poor coping strategies. So if you were going around telling everyone, or writing it over the walls, or putting posters up about your family member and what they were doing, you'd get to attention more. You know, right. but and you the, knew enough to say, "There's something up here. I better keep my mouth shut." Yes, and um, I was also, I was also a really good student, and I was a, an athlete that was doing stuff. So it was like people mm-hmm. couldn't look and say, "This is." As, as psychiatry would say, this is negatively affecting this area of functioning in his life. It was just totally stayed within the bounds of my family, where everyone knew something was very wrong. Yeah, but it didn't it didn't affect my school so much or anything else. Yeah. If it had, I would have been in a lot of trouble. Right. Um, no how pervasively something affects people's functioning and um, how dramatic people's behavior um, determines whether they come to the attention of psychiatric services or not. Yeah. And um, but the problem is it's so it is a categorical diagnosis in this country. Yeah. You know, we don't see we, if there's a if there's a sign of psychosis, 
the default position is to medicate because we think that the treatments are relatively benign and that untreated psychotic episodes could be troublesome. That, and that's also where we so many clinicians, in my observation, just when they get someone who gets these things that get labeled as psychosis, they have no idea what to do, and it freaks them out. Clinicians. There's no, when, you know, I was trained in a very um, fantastically psychological, psychotherapeutic um, training program in uh, New York City. And, um, but even there, there was this categorical distinction. If someone was psychotic, there wasn't much you could do, and psychotics mm-hmm. were called for. Yeah. And, um, and so we have, I think, evolved to this very problematic situation where um, we set, get a whiff of some delusional or hallucinatory experience. We don't know what else to do and, uh, other than give medication. And we feel, look, they're safe. You know, we'll take people off pretty quick. But the reality is people don't come off pretty quick. Right. Um, and they're not, they're not safe. And they have all kinds of body and um, uh, mental side effects to them, as you've said. And yeah. people get sucked in. People get sucked into the mental health service here in a way that they might not um, in other countries. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that experience is, that you had is a good example of sort of a, a, a normal range, um, mm. odd experience yeah. um, that could have gone different ways if you were, you know, if you were the son of a psychiatrist, yeah, for, for example, sure. um, then that psychiatrist could have been more concerned and then they could have all been on the lookout for prodromal features and been scrutinizing your behavior sure. and changing their response to you um, accordingly. Yeah, it happens yeah. all the time. And it does happen all the time. I mean, I know as a therapist, I, just the stories I heard from person after person after person about the, the horrible and really brutal things that happened to people in the system. That it, What it did to me is basically it made me say, I don't trust the mental health system. And I was in it. As a, yeah. I was in private practice, but I, I didn't really ever feel comfortable. I very rarely felt comfortable even suggesting that people go to therapy. And if they have extreme problems, it's like I didn't really know where to send them very, very often to the point that, that I was always looking for places, and occasionally there were good clinicians out there who I trusted, but not very many and certainly not in very many places. And that's part of what motivated me to start searching around the world and say, where so are Daniel, places that actually Daniel, do a good job? You, you spoke a little bit to, about first episode um, presentations. We've had a bit of discussion about that. Tell me about some of these um, people who were much more long-standing um, patients in the mental health service that you say you were failed by the mental health system. They would be seen in this country as you know refractory, um, chronic, perhaps with diagnoses of chronic paranoid schizophrenia, right? Right. And okay. Do you want me to talk about people that I saw? I want, to tell me, tell, I want you to tell me some stories about uh, things that might be amazing for a Western psychiatrist to see. Sure. Well, it's, it's, it's complicated. Um, I just wonder, like, yeah, for my practice, you know, I saw a lot of people who were labeled, who, who had been, you know, had 10, 20, 30, 40 or more hospitalizations who just who somehow inside themselves just believed that they could get well. And especially once they started hearing stories of other people who did it, they just somehow felt that they could do it, they could get off their medications. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how specific to be, because I don't want to reveal personal stuff, but 
in certainly in Sweden at this program that helps people and places people in these farm families, I talked to people who were in the process of getting well and in the process of coming off their medication, who were finding just being around respectful, compassionate people was helping them, helping yeah. them find their way out, helping them get a sense of their self-esteem and their usefulness. I don't, um, here's, a, here's a funny thing, is that I wanted to talk to people who had been through this program and had gotten fully well, and this has been a continued problem I have when I go to programs like this, is it's often very hard to find the people who have gotten well and are totally are the ultimate success stories of the program because they go on and live their lives. It's like they're not, they're not like publicizing and saying, I've done it, I've done it. The clinicians have stories. The farm families all had stories of people who came to them who were just totally like, you couldn't even have a conversation with them. They were either totally catatonic or there's one, there's one person in my Swedish film that a family describes that she was a woman who thought there was chickens coming out of her hat, uh, a chicken, there were dead chickens under her hat, and she just compulsively talked for hours on end. You couldn't understand much of what she was saying. She didn't listen to anything. And she lived with them, I think, for two or three years with one yeah. family. And during that, process, that, that time, she just started slowly and gradually becoming involved with the family, started talking with one person and then talking with two people, and then slowly like conversations started to happen as opposed to just what would be considered insane monologues. And she started calming down. This is a woman who had had decades of a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And eventually she started helping out around the farm and wanting to participate and coming to family meals. And after a few years, like she basically was really just starting to function. And it's such a shame that the Swedish Swedish, um, model hasn't really kept tabs on what happened to people. They can because they have the Swedish registry um, and they can track people very easily, but it sounds like that research hasn't been done there. Yeah. But we have plenty of um, American studies and international studies like the WHO studies which show consistently not only that there are good outcomes over the long term, even for the most um, troubled, chronic, refractory patients in backwards of hospitals, mm. um, but also internationally how perhaps um, being involved in life and with the family and without necessarily access to medications, outcomes seem to be better. Right. Yeah. All right, well, let's come back after a short break, okay? Sure. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260 day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hi, welcome back. Um, so today we have Daniel Makla, um, author of Way Out of Madness and uh, producer of three films um, dealing with alternatives to the treatment of psychosis. And Dan, we were talking in the break about what a tragedy it is that there's not that um, all of these programs aren't really keeping good data so that we can have good follow-up studies. I mean, there's, there's a few key studies that have been done around the place, like Courtney Harding's study and... Martin Harrow's study, which show pretty good outcomes, but um, we're left a lot of the time with individual personal accounts, mm. um, and it's easy to sort of retrospectively say, yeah, but that person didn't really have schizophrenia or, right. or, or change history a little bit. Can I jump in on that one? Yeah, go ahead. Well, when I made my first film, Take These Broken Wings, I anticipated that people would say, oh, I, I, which is about people who had recovered from schizophrenia without medication and about the subject in general, I anticipated that people would say, oh, that person never really had schizophrenia, or that person is just is not really recovered. They're just, they're just experiencing, I forget what the word is, they're, they're just experiencing you know, a temporary remission of, of their symptoms, and they're going to become crazy again at some point. So what I did is I chose two subjects who were both long, long-term, um, who were in long-term recovery, and also who had very clear-cut diagnoses of schizophrenia by expert doctors. And their diagnosis was, um, was confirmed by expert doctors. And yeah. one person was Catherine Penny, the subject of the book Dante's Cure, and she has been in recovery for over 30 years with yeah. no, no relapse of symptoms at all, totally off medication for over 30 years. I think it's, what is it, 37 years, something like that. And the other person is jo- who, who I was the subject of my film was Joanne Greenberg, the author yep. of I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Mm-hmm. And she's been in full recovery without medication for almost 60 years. Yep. And it's like, let the people, I, I figured, let the people come and say that those people are just in remission. 
and and they and, and the funny thing is people have said that people said oh those people never really did have schizophrenia and it's like there's some people who are going to always deny and there's really nothing i can say to that but at the same time it's like good scientific long-term follow-up studies more and more of them would definitely be good most yeah. of what i have is anecdotal stories and of those, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of anecdotal stories of people who have recovered, who are off their medication, have recovered for five years, 10 years, 15 years, three years, two years, 26 years, 40 years, and it's just there's endless yeah. numbers of people that I know. And, but you know, the other thing is um, that even if um, someone might experience another psychotic state, um, some time later. It doesn't mean they necessarily have to be on maintenance high dose of medications the whole time. Yeah. You know, um, maybe they have reached a point where they can make some informed decisions about what they want to do. Um, and uh, maybe they, you know, that might include medications if they're going to be a danger to themselves or someone else. Um, but often it's not for that reason. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult um, space to maneuver as a um, physician because obviously you get scared. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I'm so glad that I was not a psychiatrist. I, I have a degree in social work and I, I've just, I've, I've invariably been grateful that I never had to deal with being a doctor. Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a mixed blessing. Um, and um, the more that I learn about recovery from, you know, psychosis um, and some of the downsides of medications, the harder it becomes. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, but, um, so tell me a little bit about um, the ro- how you see the role of the family because your last book, your last book or yeah, yeah. penultimate one, um, was specifically about that. So can you say something specially about, because we well, do a sub- lot of The subtitle of the book, A Way Out of Madness, the subtitle is Dealing with Your Family after you've been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. So it's a guidebook to help people learn how to deal with their family. Because for most people that I've talked to, in fact, I think I'd be hard-pressed to think of a single exception. So I could say everybody that I've talked to who has issues that get labeled as psychosis, there's some involvement with their family. Either their family, they feel their family caused it, or they feel their family is part of the helping process, or their you know, family is angry at them or concerned with them. So people are very, very involved with their families. And so families can take any number of roles. I think some people I've talked to, part of their recovery was getting far, far away from their families and cutting off contact with their families. Other people lived with their families and found their families to be a great support. And those might be the two different extremes and that, People can fall into any, anywhere on the continuum between those two extremes, and maybe they fall at different places on the continuum at different points. I know some people who said, you know, a huge part of my recovery was getting away from my family. I was furious at them. I felt they caused the problems that led me to have this thing called psychosis, and I was away from them, and I had no contact with them for five years, none. And you know what? Now I do have contact with them, and I resolved a lot of the issues, and I do have some sort of relationship with them. I know other people who say my family profoundly helped me recover, and as time went on, I realized I actually didn't want as much relationship with them, and so I, I have more distance from them now, but during my recovery process, they were very helpful. So I think a lot of it is a person who gets labeled with a problem or is experiencing some problem, they have to have a feeling that they're being respected. And 
their their autonomy has to be important. So a huge part in what's the family's place in the recovery process, I think, should come from the person who themselves has been labeled or diagnosed and give them the sense that they're being respected. And if they want their family to be involved, then by all means, that's a great thing. And if they don't want their family involved, then I think that should be respected also. It's interesting. At Westbridge, we have a very um, pro-family approach, you know, because um, both those international studies, um, like the WHO studies, you know, showing... Um, suggesting that increased family involvement is uh, might be a part of what is helping people with recovery, and also right. national studies of um, of reducing high expressed emotion like critical comments and hostile sure. comments um, can um, vastly improve outcomes um, so you know we we try to help families be more collaborative in their communication and uh, and in problem solving and talk to each other a lot more respectfully and really try and remold a lot of that, that um, interaction to take away some of the sting and criticism within it. Sounds um, good. But, uh, um, but you're saying, great, that's fine, but the cost of that might be maybe you're undermining, maybe you're sacrificing the empowerment of the um, identified patient, you know, the uh, client, right. um, and it should be their wish and desire. Um, and and some families, what is needed is you know a familyectomy for a while um, until the person um, feels in a state to be able to open open that door again. Yeah, well, I, and I think that I mean this is a big question I had when I went up and visited Northern Finland: is are they forcing family therapy on people? Are they putting pressure on people experiencing psychosis to have to deal with their family and talk about things maybe they don't want to? Yeah, and what I got repeatedly from clinicians and from clients in, in northern Finland was that the clients were ultimately given the choice. If they did not want to meet with their families, they were not forced to. But, and I, I gave the example of, let's say, because like, I heard this many times as a clinician, people who were experiencing this thing called psychosis, they described cases of being sexually abused in childhood, being right. you know, emotionally abused, physically abused, not at all uncommon. And right. that... I thought, well, what if someone's been molested by her father, and she's 19 years old now, she's going through something that might be labeled as psychosis, you know, what if she doesn't want to meet with her father? And I, I brought up that question, and they repeatedly said, well, my God, we're going to respect her. We're not going to, maybe we could talk with the father separately at a different time and with his own personal clinician to help him go work through stuff, but we're not going to put her in family therapy with him, especially if she's not interested in it. But what they described in northern Finland is, by and large, almost all of the people that they've seen over the years actually did want their families involved. That when they were given the choice, they did. And sometimes maybe they were uncomfortable with the idea at first, but a lot of times what they said was that people maybe were uncomfortable but also gave consent at the same time. And then eventually what they say in northern Finland is that people saw the value in it. In the value in family involvement. Once they learned to trust that the clinicians were really on their side and weren't just siding with their families against the client, that the people labeled as client felt very comfortable with family therapy and found great value in it. Yeah. And so that's where I say, well, respect a person's autonomy, respect the person who's labeled as the client. And, you know, if, if they can be convinced that family therapy is good, then by all means, it might be very, very helpful. But I mean, this is what this comes down to this overarching problem with our current mental health system, which is that it is so disempowering in yes. some regards. 
you know, and um, how to begin to change that. I mean, the way you speak, um, you know, um, can be um, the way you speak, you know, really always is referring to that empowerment in, in different realms of treatment and trying to help people, trying to respect people's um, decision-making um, and give them space to develop without being uh, labelled and um, and um, written off in some way. Yeah. Um, but that's such a challenge for our mental health system at the moment. For sure. And then I, as a therapist, when I worked, I, I did... Um, about 80% of my practice was individual therapy, and the other 20% was couples therapy. And very, very occasionally I would do family therapy. But often I would ask people, if you ever want to bring a family member in here and you feel it would be of benefit to you, by all means, invite them. <laughs> the way I worked, people didn't want to. It very rarely did, and I was always open to it. But sometimes they would. And sometimes they would bring a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, but not, you know... It, not that much, and people didn't bring their parents that much sometimes. But it, it, I think it's like, I think also the, a therapy style should be in line with what feels comfortable to the therapist also. Mm-hmm. And for me, like when I was a teenager, there was a lot of pressure for me to go with my parents and my sister to family therapy. And I remember they wanted it and they suggested it, and I was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I had no faith. And I think they may even wanted to go to my mother's or my father's therapist. And I was like, I just had a very strong sense, beep, 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 like my radar went up, that I was going to be disempowered if I participated in this process. And they were going to use the therapeutic process to gang up on me. And I was like, there was no way. I mean, I think I probably would have run away if they'd forced me to go to therapy. And so for me, it was very good not to do that. Okay, so... Um, what a perfect time for a brief break, um, and we'll be back shortly. Sure. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. 
Two views. Different topics. Questions. Answers. News. And advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hey, welcome back. Mark Green here with Daniel Mackler. Daniel, I think we're going to get into a topic which will probably run the clock right down. So where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, probably the easiest way is to go into Google and just Google my name. And my website is irarsoul.com. So that's I-R-A-R-E-S-O-U-L.com. I have my email on there, so people can find me there too. And I'm also on Facebook. Fantastic. All right, so Dan... um, what do you think, you mentioned a, a, a few times this thing which we call psychosis and um, the, um, you know, dangers of the medication and, um, you know, that one of the great programs, is, when great things about this Swedish program was that you know, they really encourage people to move off of their medications. So I'm taking it that you're not that much of a fan of medic- psychiatric medication. No. And antipsychotics in particular. No. No, well, certainly with antipsychotics, I'm just... Let's pretty, stick to those. Sure, I'm pretty staunchly against them. And yeah. on the other hand, as a therapist, I worked with some people who took antipsychotic medication and wanted to. And when it came to that, I felt that's their business. I'm in no position to tell people to, you know, to stop taking their medication or anything like that. I would have felt that that really would have overstepped the bounds of my relationship with them. But on the other hand, when I worked with people and they were on antipsychotic medications and they wanted to come off, I felt they had a fantastic ally in me because personally, I don't think the medications are a good thing in almost any case. And in open dialogue in Finland, a certain percentage of people do go on medications. In my in antipsychotic medication, in my ideal program that I envision, nobody does. And then I have certain reasons that I, I just am strongly against antipsychotic medication. So, um, go ahead, tell me some of your certain reasons. Well, there's, there's the first, the obvious ones of the side effects. The side effects for so many people are just so horrendous. And, and the side effects can happen very, very quickly. You know, a person can take them and in a very short time can have side effects. Sometimes they're irreversible. And 
the extreme ones being people taking psychiatric medications and committing suicide as the result of the medication. It's like that's that's just horrendous. When I even consider that that's a possibility, right away my red flag goes up and say, oh, let's let's just, if at all possible, avoid all psychiatric medication. Then the second thing, and this is this is a huge, huge. Now, and, and in that, you're referring to, you know, the. Um, you know the the studies done with antidepressants, um, which can show a increased rates of suicide in the first. Right, and I base it on my personal experience of like people I've worked with who've, who've had family members who have committed suicide, and it mostly has been a few. The few I've worked with that that's happened, it's been on, um, it's been on SSRIs. But on the other hand, I've heard stories and I've heard people who have taken an antipsychotic. And the side effects were so horrendous for them, the way that their mind got scrambled up, that they literally became suicidal. They just felt life wasn't worth living very, very quickly. And if, especially when people have been force-injected with medication, the side effects happen very quickly. There's no sense of autonomy at all. and They didn't get to choose to take the pill. Instead, they got stuck in the, stuck in the rear end with, with an injection. So... Those those are just extreme cases, or the people I know, people who have gotten diabetes and heart disease, and people who have become extremely. Obese. They have horrendous, horrendous side effects. Yeah, that's just like. And, and some people, certainly, there's certainly never been studies to show that um, antipsychotics, apart from perhaps clozapine, perhaps um, or antidepressants, improve any um, rates of uh, suicide. So they definitely don't don't um, seem to improve that. Right. So, so the first part is just basically all the, the mental and physical risks as the result of taking antipsychotics and other medications, too. So my personal feeling is just because of the risks, that's very dangerous. Now, of course, I know people who have taken medications, all sorts of psychiatric medications, and describe no side effects that, they, that they're aware of. But, so that brings me into the second reason that I don't, still don't like the medications, even if people don't feel they're having any side effects. And that's that there's some psychological thing that happens when someone takes a pill to take away a symptom. And sometimes because of this, I feel that the side effects in a way are a great wake-up call. They're a reminder that something's going very wrong here. And sometimes it can be even more dangerous for the people who take their medications and have no side effect because they're not even realizing the insidious effect that happens. That there's, there's, It's like taking a pill is a reminder at some level that you can't solve your own problem. You need a pill to help you solve your problem. And I just have such a strong belief in human resiliency and in a, a person's ability to work out their problems, to, to solve their problems on an emotional level, on a social level, on an interactional level, that, and, and even through other things, through diet, through exercise, through hanging out with friends, through changing lifestyle, all these different things that allow a person to have an internal sense of autonomy and agency. So I do too, right? I um, also have a very strong um, feeling about people's resiliency and the power of family and work and in being embedded in a caring community. Right on, right on, good, right on. Good therapy work, to, you know, and patience and time. Right. I've got a lot of faith in all of those things. But right. I also am confronted as a prescriber with the reality that in discontinuation studies of antipsychotics, there's almost universal um, um, relapse. Now, when you look at long-term, um, long-term um, follow-up studies, 
Um, there is a very good proportion of people who remains a minority, but a good proportion of people who come off their medications and, and leave the mental health system and have good recoveries. But right. whenever you try and do this, either clinically, um, you know, with people in front of me, or in, um, in trials where people have tried to reduce in fast, slow, or medium pace, um, the relapse rates have been horrendous. Right. Um, now, what we don't know is whether those relapse rates is just psychosis, which maybe we could deal with differently, or terrible, destructive, um, falling apart of their lives. Right. Um, you know, because the measures are often like return of psychosis or need for hospitalization. But um, can I jump in with what you're saying? Please, yeah. Sure. So the first thing that you're talking about is is that withdrawing is very dangerous, and that it's very very hard. And I'm totally with you on that. So my my whole thing is, if people can avoid getting on the medications in the first place, that's obviously the best. Because once so people are on what, them, Dan, Daniel, we're, we're coming to the end, and I have a huge amount of sympathy and. An, and I'm sort of studying this avidly um, and have been very inspired to do that by talking with people such as you and people who've come off their medications. You know, what we've got to be careful of as well is, um, you know, saying that there's some purest, um, some pure, better state to being without pills, which, um, you know, sort of morally better. Ooh, um, I, I definitely am not saying morally. I'm speaking on a quite a practical level. Yeah. So I think um, I, we should have done this in the first segment because it's so subtle and intriguing. I've got a lot of sympathy and a lot of um, uh, feeling that the medications are problematic both in the first episode and later on. Um, and we need to question our default practice of medicating everyone for too long. Right on. Yeah. So, um, all right, Daniel, we've come to the end of the um, meeting. Thanks so much. A real pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Bye-bye. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.